Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And Eric, this is an interesting Friday because typically on this show we kind of dive in and give our final preview, our predictions, our final assessments, biggest concerns of a duck football game. And for our intents and purposes, this is kind of more of a of a throwback to the last four weeks. What have we learned? What do we think is going to happen? We do have some injury news that's really important that we need to dive into, but there's no game to preview because it's a bye week, but that also opens the door for us and the rest of the fans uh, of the Oregon football program to watch a lot of other Pac-12 games. And, boy, this weekend in Pac-12 play, if you weren't going to watch an Oregon team, this is like a a weekend you might want to pick because it could get wild. This is like I'm looking at the slate right now, the schedule for the week. It's like, I I genuinely, and we'll do our picks. Uh, we've already done our picks, I guess, but uh, genuinely, like, any of these games can go any way. And the implica- implications of some of these games are wild because, <laughs> like, every like, basically every team from the Pac-12 North could lose this week, uh, with the obviously with the exception of one of the Stanford Oregon State teams. But like, Cal could lose to Arizona State, and then that changes a lot of things. USC could beat Washington, and suddenly Washington is really, you know, looking down the barrel. Uh, Washington State could lose at Utah. I wouldn't be shocked with that at all either, and suddenly they have two losses. Stanford could lose to Oregon State. I wouldn't be shocked with that either, and this could be a weekend where Oregon's not even playing, but so much damage is done around them that Oregon all of a sudden looks up and kind of dusts its shoulder off and goes, we're one and oh, and everyone else has one or two losses. Like, it's just a wild week, and like, and that doesn't even include the fact that, like, I still have no idea what this UCLA team is, and like, if they go out and beat UC, or sorry, they go beat Arizona on the road uh, Saturday night, like, suddenly is are, like, are the Bruins the favorite in the Pac-12 South? Like, I mean, the world's like <laughs> completely flipped upside down suddenly. It's just wild. Well, I don't think I would I would consider the Bruins a favorite in the Pac-12 South if they beat Arizona, but I do get what you're saying because like. The first three weeks of the season, UCLA's offense was terrible, and if they go down to Arizona and they have another just even half of what they did from a statistical and a score standpoint of what they did at Washington State, everyone's going to say, oh, well, Chip Kelly figured things out. Here come the Bruins are now going to be a tougher out than many expected. But I think there's you, – you are right. There's a lot of games on this slate. There's five games in Pac-12 play. Colorado is the other team that's off this week uh, along with Oregon. Friday night tonight – it starts off with Arizona State traveling to California. Uh, the Bears are 4-0. They're 15th in the country. Uh, they have to win this game, A, to keep pace with Oregon, but this is a, this is one of those games that they probably at the start of the season said, hey, if we want, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, uh, if, if, if they said that, you know, if California said at the beginning of the year that if they wanted to be bowl eligible, this is one of those games that they probably needed to win. And now this is this is a game for them that could be the difference of them making like the Cheez It Bowl and the Holiday Bowl because they've probably already claimed a a win at Ole Miss that wasn't expected, maybe outside of the program. But that's what separates teams from being in good bowls to bad bowls and and it's it's winning the games that you should and then maybe going you know 500 in the games that you shouldn't win and this is one of them for Arizona State they got to get back on track if they lose this one uh you know getting back to a bowl game is going to be difficult but the game that could really shake up the Pac-12 I think uh is USC at Washington at 12:30 games at on Fox uh that's Pacific time 
Huskies already have a loss in conference play, and if if they lose this one, and I and I'm picking USC to win. I, watching, I am too. I am too. Watching what the Trojans did against Utah's secondary was impressive, and and I think Washington's secondary is good, but I just have this feeling that. Utah's secondary is just as good as Washington's, er, and maybe if not better. And USC played with them like they were little toys and, you know, destroyed those guys. And so I, I'm picking USC to go into Seattle and get another win. They'd go to four and, four and one on the year, three and oh in Pac-12 play. They probably would jump to, you know, 14, 15, 16th in the country with, with the road win. And the Huskies all of a sudden would drop to three and two on the year, two losses in the Pac-12. Uh, that would put Oregon and Washington, or Oregon and California, excuse me, granted California wins in a position where next weekend's game in Eugene between the Bears and, and the Ducks could be for the Pac-12 North. And, and that becomes especially the case if Washington State were to lose to Utah, which right. I think is, I'm actually picking the Cougars to, to win that game, but Same here. but if it goes the other way, suddenly you've got Washington State, Stanford, Washington, all with two losses, and I'm not even including Oregon State in the discussion. Sorry, Beaver fans, that's where I feel disrespectful, but I think we we kind of are all on the same page that they're not a real player in the North. Um, that I mean, suddenly you're right. I mean, suddenly it's like this is a like perfect situation for Oregon, and again, the fact that they play Cal at home, they win that game. You look up and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week. It's just it, it really could all play out perfectly for Oregon here in terms of it could get to a point here where they play all the Pac-12 North teams besides Oregon State in the next month or so, and if they're able to take care of business in, in all those games, they might even have room to, to lose one of those if it's the right school based upon the win-loss record, um, and, and they'll be just sitting pretty. you know. And, I, and, and, you know, obviously Oregon still has to win some games, and we talked about the schedule. It's not easy, and we're talking about this USC team. They still have to go to the road there. They still have to go to the road at Washington. I think we know there aren't going to be easy games, but um, it's setting up to be a very, very interesting Pac-12 season. And, again, we're going to learn a lot this week. I mean, this is a very compelling week. There's not a game this weekend, probably with the exception of Stanford and Oregon State, which doesn't, like, have potentially big implications for the Pac-12 North or Pac-12 South um, division crown. And the reason I mentioned UCLA as a favorite here is if USC were to lose at Washington – and Utah were to lose a second straight game to Washington State, Arizona State lose at Cal, suddenly UCLA is 2-0 in the conference um, and is leading the Pac-12 South, which nobody expected. No one thought that was possible after they looked just god-awful in their first three games um, of the season. And uh, I don't know if that really speaks to the pac 12 strength. It's a team <laughs> that was just mauled by, like, San Diego State and Oklahoma. Um, and I'm Cincinnati. forgetting. Cincinnati, I forgot. Yeah, that, that was the first loss. Um goes out and wins two Pac-12 games. but uh, And those are both two Pac-12 road games, we should mention, too. So the schedule should pick up for the Bruins. But um, a lot of really interesting stuff. And, frankly, it's like this – this. I mean, I, I know nationally the perception of the Pac-12 is not great. And I've talked last week about how I, I, I think it's better than, than what a lot of people think. But, like, isn't this fun? Just, like, how much is up in the air and, and how even a lot of these teams feel? Like, I, it really feels like – I. I don't have a great feeling or a great pulse. My confidence level is not that high on any of these picks I'm making this week just because the league is so up and down. And you, I don't think the difference between even like Oregon to like some of these middle kind of the seven and eight teams in the Pac-12, if Oregon is the best team, which I think it is, 
Um, is that significant? So these games are all these games all feel like they could just really almost go one way or the other. It, it's it's a really fun time in terms of just the parity of the conference. I think. Yeah, you have five Pac-12 teams ranked in the top 25. Uh, Oregon is the highest at 13. Um, but you've also got California at 15. You've got Washington at 17. Utah at 19. USC at 21. And all of a sudden, if, if you buy into the fact that the Pac-12 has, you know, five ranked opponents or programs in, in the top 25, Almost every week, someone's claiming a quality win. Yep. And the, the key here, I think, for the conference is whoever wins USC and Washington, you want you want that team to continue to win. You don't want them to lose. Uh, probably for California, for the for the conference, the betterment of the conference, you want California to continue to win. You don't want them to lose. Utah is probably the same way. Uh, and then obviously Oregon. Now obviously these teams are all going to play each other, but when, when they're not, the conference wants them, you know, those four teams, California, Oregon, Utah, and whoever comes out of the USC Washington game victorious, uh, you want those teams to win, you know, to win out as many games as, as they can without, when they don't play each, those, you know, the other three, just because that will strengthen the league and present you know, whoever comes out of the, out of that four as the top dog, you know, three or four, maybe five quality wins in conference play, and maybe they find their way backdooring themselves into the college football playoff. And I think the depth of this conference continues to just kind of impress me because outside of probably UCLA, Arizona, and Oregon State, I think every other team in the league has either been ranked already or has a chance to be ranked going forward. Obviously, Stanford's been ranked. I don't think they're going to be ranked again this season. I wouldn't be shocked if they lost to the Beavers. But you talk about Arizona State's already been ranked. Washington State's obviously already been ranked. I think Colorado might have been ranked for a moment. If they haven't been, they've got to be awfully close um, this week. So uh, if the, de- the depth of this league, again, the top the top teams in this league aren't at the same level as the a lot of these power conferences. But I think the talent from you know, three through eight is as deep as any other in the country. And and I think that's what makes it really fun is because you have to go earn every win every week. There's not really a game on the schedule that's ever going to be like, oh, just a complete gimme game, with the exception of maybe an Oregon State team at home or an Arizona team at home like Oregon has uh, late in the season. Now, just because Oregon's playing, not playing this weekend, um, doesn't mean there's not significant news that's been released this week that we've learned um, in I think we would be remiss if we didn't dive into the injury front. Mario Cristobal provided some pretty significant positive news along the injury front and some pretty significant injury news on maybe the negative side of things uh, for Oregon. Yeah, so, I mean, the positive here is uh, Micah Pittman's practicing. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably where we should start, I think. And Jake Hansen are practicing. Those are two players who, uh, Hansen missed last week with, again, an undisclosed injury. Uh, but he's full go now. Micah Pittman has not practiced since mid-August, uh, after, uh, a shoulder injury set him out. He's practicing, um, it's, it sounds like all drills, but in a non-contact injury. So he's getting pretty close. Brennan's school has not started practicing, but it sounds like he'll be starting to practice soon. It sounds like all three of those guys, could be available. Obviously, Hansen will be available um, when they play Cal, but they could get Schooler and Pittman back. Cyrus Habibi, Lee Keo 
also a player that he says, uh, Mario Cristobal said is getting close. So those four guys, it sounds like decent chance that they have all of those players back against California. Now, you mentioned kind of some not so positive news. The Juwan Johnson saga continues. I mean, he's been day to day for a lot of days. A month. For, 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 yeah, for over a month now. And, you know, Cristobal was pressed a little bit on using that word. And, and I'm going to read a quote here. Uh, because again, he said Juwan Johnson remains day to day. And he goes, I wish I could just find a better phrase or word to describe when you have an injury like that. It can linger. There is no setback. It has not worsened. It's just, he's just not quite there. We feel optimistic about it being ready in the near future, but because it has taken so long, we'll just continue to say day by day, day by day and keep everybody posted and that there won't be any surprise one way or the other. So uh, at this point, it's just a whole lot of I mean, honestly, we, I don't have any better feel for if he's going to be available this week as I have any other week. You know, I mean, like, there, there's no – Chris Wall certainly didn't tip his hand and say, this guy's going to be ready. You know, and, and it's getting to the point here where now clearly the day-to-day thing is just kind of the way they're describing it. And this injury, like, we don't really have a great feel for, for what's going on with Juwan. And frankly, I, I wouldn't be shocked if, like, he – doesn't play much at all this season now. I mean, I, it doesn't feel like he's gotten much closer just because the verbiage has stayed identical for four weeks. Yeah, and that's that's the unfortunate part because I think you could tell um, he was going to make an impact in some capacity, right? Uh, yeah. You know, for for Oregon and during the spring game, during you know the early part of fall camp. It was pretty clear he was going to make an impact, but unfortunately, you know, he, he suffered some kind of a calf injury. And I think the frustration with the media, with the fans is that, and, and probably internally too. I mean, I'm sure Jawan's frustrated. I'm, I'm sure the coaching staff is frustrated and not at, at Jawan for being hurt, but just sure at the situation of it. Like Mario described it yesterday as a deal where, you know, like it's literally a day by day, situation and some days it's good some days it's bad and I mean I I think that's what makes it most difficult is that they're probably at a a spot where it's they're very very close to getting him back but they just can't get over that final hump or that final you know that final hill whatever and my, my, my concern is just is this Cam McCormick all over again where he's been day by day and suddenly it's they uh, shut it down. He shut it down. I don't know. I mean, that does does that would that shock you if if sometime in the next two weeks they come out and say, hey, he's no longer day by day. We've we've reconsidered and and we're going to shut him down for the season. I wouldn't be shocked by that. I mean, like, playing devil's advocate here, there's two scenarios. One, okay, he did not travel to Stanford. No, he didn't. Jake Hansen, Brendan Schooler, Cyrus Abilakio. Those guys did not play because of injury against Stanford, and they traveled because probably they were there was a chance that they could play, and or at least not for Schooler. Um, I don't know why Schooler transferred, but he, he still did. And for Cam or and for for Jawan, he did not make it. And so the, the there could be a, a whole plethora of reasons why. The first one that comes to my mind that's just logical, and I hate trying to you know interpret injuries because it's unfair but typically you don't see you don't see athletes travel on planes or long or just long distances in vehicles uh when they have some kind of an injury because the body swells up and 
or you're, you're stationary for a really long time and, and it's just not good for guys that are rehabbing. I mean, when Drew Brees hurt his thumb in week two of the NFL season, he stayed behind in LA for a whole week and a half because he had surgery and then had to wait for his body to adjust and recover and, and not allow itself to swell up because of a travel. And that's just a thumb. So injuries, you know, that could be a reason why he didn't travel. Hey, it's not worth, you know, getting you on a plane and seeing how your body reacted, you know, to Dallas or whatnot. But at the same time, if he's not, if he's day to day, as it's been described, and he doesn't make it to, to the game, he's not really day to day because he can't, he can't go through the travel routine and be able to play. And so that, that becomes an issue. And, and, and maybe it's more of, Maybe it's week to week, maybe instead of a day to day scenario. Um, I, I think, yeah, eventually there's going to get to a point where does he even play? Because is it better for him? I mean, what, what does he want? Does he want to play out five games in a season? And if that's the difference in Oregon making the Rose Bowl, or does he want the best chance that he can, he can have to, to play a full slate of, you know, of, of college football one last time and prepare himself for the NFL? Or, or maybe he just wants to play one full season of football. I don't know. But, yeah, I think eventually you're going to get to a point where you wonder, do they actually shut this down? Yeah, and, and again, no indication from Cristobal that that is where they're headed or that's the direction it's going. Um, I, I, he handled, I thought he handled it all fairly well, given the fact that he's just not going to say more than what he said. I think he's there's pretty clearly – a limit to what he's feeling comfortable communicating. You, you understand that with injuries. I mean, this is sensitive information. Obviously, it's frustrating if you're a fan or you're in the media and you're trying to parse through and figure out what's going on with Jawan Johnson. But uh, they're comfortable saying he's day to day and that uh, you know he could be back anytime soon. Uh, he did say that he's doing. He's able to run straight line, which is a positive. Right. Um. So yeah, I, again, just. A lot of uncertainty, and it, it, it feels like we're kind of in the same place we've been for over a month now, where it's he might dress, who knows, maybe he's going to suit up against Cal, and he'll play the rest of the season at a very high level, and this whole thing will feel kind of just silly. weird, silly in retrospect. Or it could be a thing where, where this is this is legitimately might, he might not play very much this season, or at all. Uh, we, we really just don't know at this point. Again, it's kind of become... Uh, this, this, it feel, I don't know, it, it, it's just kind of a, it's just a weird thing. I, I, that's, I don't want to say anything more. I, it's just been kind of strange and certainly you're, you're kind of left scratching your head a little bit about what specifically is going on, what specifically the odds are of actually seeing him in uniform this season. Now, from an on-field piece of information, um, it, there's no doubt that you, you can say the Oregon run game is struggling and I think in a, a very candid, way Mario Cristobal came out and said the same thing on 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 Wednesday of this week of there is issues with Oregon's run game yeah I, I he did he did he came out and said it and and uh, he was I think he was asked more questions about the run game than just about anything else yesterday at his Wednesday press conference and it boils down to this comment that I thought was pretty telling he said we know it's not good enough we take a lot of pride in it. That's what we're working on the bye week. We expect to have better results going forward. So an admission, at least, of, hey, it's not been great. And it, and it would be hard to argue the opposite, right? I mean, like, the stats say one thing. Watching the game says one thing. There are moments where, uh, you know, I've watched the highlights a couple of times where 
there are moments where Verdell looks like he's going to have a big run. He gets tripped up. There are moments where he doesn't maybe find the hole and it, and it doesn't go very well. There are moments where they kind of run on strange downs and get stopped. So there's a whole bunch of different things going on. But it's hard to argue that Oregon ran the ball effectively against Stanford. I mean, statistically, they averaged about three and a half yards per carry, which isn't great. Um, and, and it hasn't been significantly better in previous games. I mean, there have been moments where they've had some explosive run plays, but for the most part, it's been kind of an underwhelming group. And so I thought I was impressed that Chris Ball came out and said it um, and was just so candid about it. At the same time, I'm just still waiting to see what changes now. We have a bye week. Chris Ball did say that's the time to possibly implement some wrinkles. He said they're going to be looking at some stuff schematically. Um, but I don't know. I, I'll kind of, I'll be curious. I mean, that's going to be one of the things I'm most interested to see, um, you know, in about 10 days when, when Oregon plays, or I guess eight days now, when Oregon plays California at home is, does this run game look any different or does it feel kind of like this is the same thing we've seen all season and against a good Cal defense that has probably the best, well, I would say the best linebacker in the conference and Evan Weaver, who's just, I, I, I watched him play against Ole Miss and came away such a fan of how he plays football. Um, it's not going to be easy to run the football against this defense, and they're going to have to figure some stuff out. So I'll be very, very curious to see what adjustments are made, uh, from either from a schematic perspective, he talked about those wrinkles, from possibly a per- personnel perspective. We should mention Verdell carried 24 of the 25 times for Oregon against Stanford, and he's basically the only one running the football. Uh, will we see Travis Dye a little bit more? Will we see more of uh, Darian Felix, who had some great moments in non-conference? Will Cyrus C.B.B. Lee be healthy enough to play, and if he is, what is that impact? So a lot of things to kind of digest, but certainly I think it was a positive that Cristobal came out and acknowledged it. Now it's a matter of, of what exactly are they going to do to kind of make this take another step because, as he said, uh, they're just a little out of sick right now. In two of Oregon's next three games, they play two out of the five best defenses in the Pac-12. From a yards perspective. Now, Oregon's defense is the best from a yards per game play, uh, perspective. Um, a yards per play, California is second best in the conference, and Washington is third. So two of their next three opponents are going to come against some of the best defenses that they will face all year. And if they're one-dimensional, that's going to become a very big issue for Oregon because – I have confidence in Justin Herbert, and I think the receivers have improved. But unless you've got the nation's best quarterback, the best four or five wide receivers, and the best tight end, you have to be able to run the football. And that's the issue with this team right now is is that they can't. And I I think the the, the strange thing about this is that since I've started covering the team in, in 2009, all the way from 2009 to, I don't know, 2017, Oregon was the best or one of two, the two best teams in the conference in rushing the football. They were nationally always a top 10, top 15 program. And the last couple of seasons, that's taken a significant dip. This year, they're sixth in the conference in rushing yards per game at 154. Their average is 4.42, which is sixth in the com- in the country or in, in the conference. And then you you go out from just a yards per carry average from a national level, and the numbers are are, are staggering. They're 66th in the country. Oregon State 
is 11th in the country in rushing the football. I mean, I, I would almost argue that you could, you could say that Oregon State's running backs are performing better than Oregon's. And you can say that. I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. And I don't think anyone out there is going to say that Oregon State has better players than Oregon does. I mean, maybe Jamar Jefferson is, is the better running back of the group, but no one's going to argue that Oregon State has a, a better offensive line. No one's certainly going to argue that Oregon State has a better quarterback. And no one, I mean, maybe, or, maybe you argue that Oregon State has the better receiving core, but Oregon State as a whole is not as nearly as good as the Ducks. And I don't want to compare, you know, why is this team doing this and this team not doing that? But Oregon is not living up to offensively, I think, their expectations a little bit. And the challenge is, is figuring out how to fix things. What are those fixes? And then going on and, and implementing them. And that's, and the positive is, is this. Mario Cristobal came out and acknowledged the run game is not good. And yep. it's not, it's not, or maybe I shouldn't say it's not good. It's not performing at the level that they're expecting it to. Cause he didn't say that it's not good. So he he said, didn't say it's not good enough, which is, it's which not is, good enough. Yeah. Uh, they're off sync and admitting you have a problem is the first step in, in fixing it. Um, and then going in now, they've got two weeks basically of, of game prep where they can go through and figure out what works, what doesn't work and what adjustments can we make and then implement those. And now he was also asked, you know, I don't think there's any, any changes. He was asked if, if, if there could be any changes along the offensive line from a personnel standpoint. I don't think that's the change that you make. I don't think no. it's warranted. Um, I do wonder though, do you maybe open up the competition a little bit more at running back? I mean, I, I've said it time and time again that CJ Verdell is your best pass for a running back. And if, if you have a guy like Herbert, you're going to want to throw the ball a little bit more. So he's better suited to be out there running, you know, on passing plays because he's the best protecting the football. But caveat is, is teams are going to know you're passing if, if all you're using is Verdell at running back on pass plays. So do you maybe open up the competition and I think Travis Dye didn't get a single carry or maybe got one carry. One carry. Uh, in, uh, against Stanford. Do you see what Dye can do with a little bit more carries or do you even go further down the depth chart and see what, uh, a Darian Felix can do? If Cyrus Abila is healthy, do you see what he can do? Or maybe do you even consider, you know, burning the red shirt of Sean Dollars? It, it, it'll be very interesting to see how they, they progress this way. I, I agree. I think from a personnel perspective, I wouldn't mind seeing a little bit more of, of Dye and Felix. And one of the things I asked Cristobal after the game about kind of what was the thinking behind Verdell basically being the only one who, who carried the football. And he said it's a, it comes down to fit, and, and especially against Stanford, he said that we felt it was going to be a physical game, and Verdell is a more physical runner. So clearly that played into it against this particular matchup. Stanford's a pretty physical football team too, though. So is that, is the sense going to be that, hey, Verdell was the more physical guy. He's more, you know, effective against a physical defense. He needs to be playing in this game against California. Or will they look to try, like you said, fit some other guys out there? I don't know what they're going to end up doing. Ultimately, personally, I wouldn't mind seeing them mix it up a little bit. I don't want to drag Verdell like he's, you know, not a competent player because we've seen last year he had some, some great moments and, We've even seen this year he's had some good moments, but there's been he's just not performing at the level I think we expected. And 
guy like Darian Felix or a guy like Travis Dye who's shown a little bit more explosion in the run game, I mean, if you go, the stats are pretty staggering. Oregon has four runs all season of more than 20 yards. Yeah, that's, that's not good. That's, that's not good. And none of those came against Stanford. So the first three games, they had, they had, and, and I think two of them came on 60 plus yard runs. By Felix and Dollars. That were kind of at the end of football games, yeah. And so it's like two explosive runs, you know, in, in, in really meaningful snaps all season. That's not great. You know, there's a lack of some sort of explosiveness there. And you, I, I agree, you can't expect, you can beat certain teams without a threat of running the football effectively or, or without the threat of a home run threat at running back. But at some point you do have to have a way, find a way to, to, yeah, to have a guy who can break off a 20, you know, a couple 20 yard runs in a game. And we just haven't seen that yet from Verdell, which is why Die and Felix, I don't think Verdell has a 20 yard run all season. Um, I, you know, I think it's been all die, Felix, and Dollar so far, and so I, I, I would be fully in support of, of seeing a couple of other guys against California and against Colorado, and, and and then you know maybe if those guys don't perform at a high level, or there are issues like you said, maybe in other aspects of the game like pass protection, you go okay, well we kind of have to live with what we've got. But to me, you saw enough in non-conference play from die and Felix in particular to go, these guys look capable of of being contributors. I don't know. I I, I just think the whole thing. There are clearly going to have to be some things changed this, you know, this off, this, this, uh, this bye week. And I think you'll learn a lot about kind of how malleable this staff is with its personnel, with its schematics, um, during this, this bye week. Because if they come out on Saturday against California and it feels like all the same again, I think that's going to be pretty disappointing. I mean, looking at Oregon's running backs and CJ Verdell averages four, five, 4.5 yards per play from scrimmage. So that accounts for Receiving and rushing yards. And you look at the other running backs and they're staggeringly better. You know, Travis Dye is at 6.3 yards per play, uh, from scrimmage. Sean Dollars, granted it's small sample size, but 9.1 for, for Sean Dollars. And then you, you look at Darian Felix and he's at 8.4. And I think that's, that's the balance that you're going to have to find. And, and look, the, the issue isn't all on C.J. Verdell, but the reality is he's the starting running back. He's the guy getting a bulk of the carries, and the offense on the in the run game isn't producing. And so you've got to go back, I think, and look at what can other guys do if we give them a little bit more of a look, and is it that steep of a drop-off if we make a switch-up, or is Verdell the best we got, and we just got to figure out what we can do with him and what and what can be effective with him and 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 then just go from there. Maybe, maybe Oregon's running backs are just going to be are going to have their limitations this season. I don't know, but you, I think you're going to have to go back uh, and and kind of open things up a little bit at the running back spot and and try some new things with Ferdell, But at the same time, maybe you know peel off a couple touches for another guy or or two other guys and see what they can do and see if that makes an impact. Um that's going to do it for this segment. Let's take a break. We'll we'll be right back. You're listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Yachts and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel with me as always. Uh, bi-week edition of our Friday show. Um, Eric, let's go into something you po- you posted on Wednesday. You, you r- racked some numbers from an Oregon perspective and how it lands out nationally and also in the Pac-12. Uh, we were just talking about Oregon's offense, so let's stay there. What, what's just kind of been your... Your assessment, what did the data show you about the offense through four games into the football season? Uh, I, I think two things stood out, and I think the, the, the lack of the, the issues in the run game are involved in this, but Oregon ranks 88th nationally in time of possession and 77th nationally in third down conversions. And time of possession, it makes sense. If you can't run the ball very successfully, it's hard to maintain possessions, right? And it's hard to kill the clock because, you know, so, you throw an incompletion, the clock stops. You throw a completion and the receiver gets out of bounds, the clock stops. You throw a completion and it's a first down, the clock stops, and it picks up once they reset the football. But Oregon has not been very good so far in possessing the clock. They, they're actually the opponent has averaged the ball more or has had possession of the ball more so far in four games that Oregon's averaged about 28 minutes of possession per game. So it's not the worst stat in the, you know, out there. You could be worse. There are teams that are averaging like 20, 20 minutes per game, but for, for a team that prides itself on this run game, and you know, this, again, the word Cristobal used, the town possession is not great. You know, this is not the Chip Kelly offense where, you know, I remember Chip Kelly was asked, I think it was going into a game against Stanford like six years ago about, oh man, you know, you're worried about time possession, blah, blah, blah. And Chip Kelly was like, that's, who cares about time possession? We're scoring points. Like, who cares how long we have the football? That's not this offense. This offense is not built to be a blur and fly up and down the field. I think this offense wants to chew up some clock. So the fact that they rank so low nationally is a little bit alarming. And then third down conversions, uh, ninth in the Pac-12, 77th national, 39% completion, or sorry, conversion rate. That's not very good at all. I mean, that's, that's a pretty poor number. And I think some of this has to do with struggling to run the ball in first and second, maybe incompletions and early downs where you just get off schedule. But either way, that, that number needs to be better. Um, and for them to be successful, you have to convert at a high level. And part of it has to do, I mean, some of the success, you go back to some of these games, like fourth down, Oregon has had to go for a, quite a number of fourth downs. And I think that's in part because they struggled so much on third downs. And then one last offensive stat that I guess we're sticking with just sort of negative stuff, but when you look at the offense, there wasn't a ton that was particularly positive. But with this great offensive line that Oregon has and the fact that Oregon hasn't really thrown it, as much sometimes as we like, they rank 77th nationally, 8th in the Pac-12 in sacks allowed. They've allowed eight sacks of Justin Herbert this season. Four of those came against Stanford in the last game, but that's a number I was a little, I guess I'm just a little surprised by, considering how highly regarded this group is, how talented this group is. Um, 
Herbert has had to deal with a fair amount of pressure this season. And I think that's something that I'm sure is of utmost importance, you know, going to be this off, you know, during the bye week of, of getting that number sorted. But, um, you got to be better at protecting the quarterback, especially when he's as right. good as Justin Herbert is. And I guess just one positive thing here, offensive yards per play, Oregon is 32nd nationally and fourth in the Pac-12. They average about 6.6 yards per play. So that's a positive thing. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit surprising considering we've kind of all been dragging this offense the last couple of weeks, but they, they have had some success from a yards per play perspective, which I find the yards per play to be, I don't know, maybe the most telling of kind of just the basic counting stats of just every time you line up how successful you are. It doesn't account for, you know, the way the game plays out. It's just whenever you run a, you run the play, what's the result of it? And, and Oregon is at least on that level performing at a respectable number. I should mention, they are 66th nationally in the run plays and 34th nationally um, in pass plays per play. So again, the run the running game continues to be not a strong suit. Interesting things from from the offense, and you're right about you know I think there's a lot of room for them to improve, which is probably a positive if 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 you want to look at it that way. Sure. Um, their sacks allowed. I'd be curious to look at the impact that. Jake Hansen had not playing in the Stanford game had, um, cause they did give up, I think four. Yes. Yeah. Four, four sacks, which was going into the game, the total they had all year. So, um, not, not a good number already, but at the same time, um, Hansen being out maybe was a, a, is a factor there. Now, one positive for Oregon, I think you looked at is the penalties. I mean, I, I remember like week two after week two, Crystal Ball talked about how, you know, they still had a lot of room to improve on and, and, and penalties and they were second in the conference as the most least penalized team, uh, in league play or in, in the conference. And I'm like, you're already second. What, like, what, like how, like how are you going to drastically improve this? And well, two games later they have like their eighth, eighth nationally in, in penalties called on them at just 35.5. I mean, that's a staggering number for, for Oregon, especially from two or three years ago. They were the worst in the country. Yeah, that, I was going to say two years ago under Willie Taggart, I touched on the story. They were the worst team in the country. Right now they rank eighth nationally. I don't think they had a penalty against Stanford until like maybe the fourth quarter. They had a couple that were like offsetting because both sides made uh, mistakes. But that's gone from being, when Cristobal inherited this team, a huge problem. I mean, Oregon lost games that season in part because they were just not disciplined and they made a lot of silly mistakes. You don't really see that this year. And you can, you know, you can find things to be critical of Cristobal for. Um, you know, we talked about the run game. I don't know if that's directed, you know, entirely at him, but one thing you can't question is, is the discipline he has. This has been a very disciplined team so far. Not a lot of like, I can't think of off the top of my head very many just like a guy runs up and makes a really stupid penalty for no, you know what I mean? Like some, you see it, you see it every now and then every week. Nationally, you know, a lot of teams, and even with Oregon, especially in the past, where it's just like, what the heck were you doing? Like, why, what are you, you don't have no business trying to do that. There hasn't been many of those just kind of dumb head, you know, dumb mistakes. I almost said dumb headed mistakes. I don't think it's a term, but I'm going to use it. Um, I, I just think you've seen some, some real growth there. I think that has to be seen as a real positive. A couple of other things that I thought stood out, uh, defensively, defensive yards per play. Eighth nationally at 3.9 yards per play. That's extremely impressive. Again, I think that, you know, you look at the yards per play, I think that's a really good measuring stick for for how good a team is. Um, sacks forced, Oregon is seventh nationally. Uh, passes defended, that includes pass deflections and interception. 
Uh, Oregon is third nationally with 28. Um, that's a, that's a, you know, that speaks. I think you look at the fact that they're able to sack the quarterback seventh most in the country, and then when they do get the pass out, they're third nationally uh, in deflecting those passes. That right there talks about how dominant this team is against the pass, right? Like either they're, you know, if the quarterback either, either is getting sacked or rushed, or even when he is getting the ball off and under a clean pocket, Oregon's defensive backs are, are making plays on the football. So I, I think we've all seen that, but some of these numbers sort of reaffirm the fact that, yeah, this defensive group is just really, really good and really, really impressive. And then, you know me, I'm a special teams guy. The, the Blake Maimone is 21st nationally <laughs> in punting. I couldn't not get that one out there. Um, a lot of credit to him. He's, like I said in the story, I think he's making a case possibly to be an all-pack 12 caliber player this season. Uh, been a, a lot of strides, I think, by him in the punting game. I was looking through the numbers, uh, this is, he is, the, that's the best ranking for an Oregon punter since 2011. And a lot of those seasons, Oregon's punting was ranked like in the hundreds or close to the hundreds. So to be 21st nationally, uh, is, is a big step. And we'll just continue to see if this continues to carry on throughout the season. It's a huge weapon, especially with the way Oregon is playing and field possession being, uh, you know, such an important aspect of the game. From a defensive side of the ball, I think we had an idea that Oregon's defense was going to be pretty aggressive, but two things that really stand out to me, Oregon is seventh nationally in sacks forced, they're first in the Pac-12, and then they are third nationally, first in the Pac-12, with 28 passes defended. So I think this this group is just very, very good at attacking offenses, whether it's getting to the quarterback or the secondary going after the ball once it's been released through the air. Uh, very impressive numbers on both of those two sides of the, uh, of the defense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said earlier, I, I think that just sort of speaks to how hard it is to, to pass against this group. Um, let's let's roll now into our our, our awards. All right, let's let's move into um, our awards. We've we've posted some awards now that the Ducks have played four games. Uh, they've got their bye week, so it's kind of a natural progression of just kind of let's put things on hold and just look at who has stood out through the first four games of the football season. Um, all of us have – Kevin Wade's also thrown his up on the site. But for podcast purposes, Eric, you and me, uh, let's just roll through these. I, I'll start off offensive player of, of the year so far, I think, for Oregon. There were two guys I debated this from. Justin Herbert at quarterback and Penny Sewell, uh, the left tackle. Um, I think Herbert's been tremendous. He hasn't thrown an interception, 14 touchdowns. I think he, he's been terrific in games. Uh, even against Auburn, I thought he was pretty impressive. Um, even against Stanford, I thought he was pretty impressive. Uh, you, you could argue that all of his passes against Stanford should have been caught. The five incompletions were all drops. Um, but I think I gave this award to Penny Sewell just because he's won Pac-12 interior lineman or Pac-12 offensive lineman of the week two years two weeks in a row. Um, he has something ridiculous like 16 knockdowns in two games, 11 coming against Montana. Uh, that's just outrageous to see what he's done there. Um, I think Penny Sewell has really elevated. Uh, Oregon's offense from the passing game in particular. I mean, there's a reason why they're running so many screens right now, and it's because Penny Sewell can get out there and can just obliterate dudes. So I went with Penny Sewell. 
Yeah, I I had a little bit uh, of a different look at it. I think we all know Justin Herbert is really talented, and and obviously he has a. I think he's very deserving of this sort of consideration, and I wouldn't be shocked at all if he ends up being the offensive Pac-12 um, player of the year at the end of the season. At the same time, I think we came into the season going like, who's going to be catching passes? And I kind of really deliberated between Johnny Johnson and Jacob Reeland for this because I don't know if Justin, Justin Herbert's not having this kind of a season if these guys aren't as reliable as they've been. And, you know, we came into the year going like, man, it's going to be these newcomers that are going to play a role. Like, who even knows how much Johnny Johnson's going to, you know, how, how involved is he even going to be in the offense? Is he going to get looked over? Is he going to end up being kind of a guy who we don't hear from and maybe midway through the season he transfers or something? You know what I mean? I thought that felt like a possibility. I'm not saying that's what I thought was going to happen, but it didn't feel completely unjustifiable that that would be kind of the line of, uh, you know, what transpired. Sure. In- instead, Oregon's lost four of those five newcomers to injury, um, and Johnny's stepped up and been Justin Herbert's go-to guy. And even against Stanford, which is, I think, statistically probably his worst game, um, the four catches he did make were all in traffic. He took big hits on all of them. He's just become a very valuable weapon out there and a reliable target and somebody who when you need to go make a play on a crucial third down or with the game on the line, he feels like somebody you can rely upon. And I don't think any of us necessarily expected that uh, was going to be the case. So he's the person that I picked for this award. Again, I think he, I think it, to me, it had to be somebody in the passing game. I, I Sewell's been awesome, but I, I thought just the way that this offense has moved throwing the football um, deserves a lot of credit. And, and I think Johnny Johnson is, is deserving of some, some attention for what he's done so far. You take defense first. All right. Well, I think we might have the same pick, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain my reasoning for Javon Holland first. Um, I think he's, I wrote this in the story. I think he's the most well-rounded player on that defense. Like a year ago, he struggled sometimes tackling. Like if you go back and watch, uh, the Stanford game and the Cal game, I think even the Washington game, like he missed a tackle or, or had a bad angle on a tackle attempt uh, that went for touchdowns in like all of those games. Like he had some kind of rough moments from that part. I, I, I think, you know, you look back at the stats and you're, this guy was awesome because he had so many interceptions and made so many plays back there, but there was some kind of lacking stuff in terms of tackling in space. We have not seen that at all. That, that has been such a drastic improvement I mean, he is up at the line of scrimmage blowing up screens in the open field. The photo we used on the site is literally of him, like, basically like, picking a dude up and throwing him down. Like, <laughs> you know, just, like, straight Hulk lifting a guy. Um, that's the kind of guy he's become. He's added this sort of physicality to it. And then you mix that with what you already had, which is this incredible, uh, you know, playmaking ability, ball hawk instincts at the back end of the defense. And you're just seeing a really, really good defensive back who, frankly, like, when he signed at Oregon, it was like Steve Stevens was a higher-rated guy. Yeah. Not, that, not that Javon was like overlooked and like not thought of, but like I don't think any of us expected that two years into his college career, we would be saying he's the best player on this defense. And it's not like a, you know, and it's a very, very good defense. It's not like it's an average defense we're talking about. We're talking about one of the best defenses in the country. And for Javon Holland, as a true sophomore, to kind of be flexing his muscles and looking like kind of the dude out there for that group, I think has been really surprising and really impressive. And frankly, like this was kind of a no brainer for me. Like I, I guess I could have looked at Troy die, but you know, since the Auburn game, he has just 10 tackles. I could have looked at Mace Funa because of his tackle for loss and sack stuff. But just in terms of being the most well-rounded guy, uh, I thought Javon Holland was the pick and I really didn't even really consider that many other players. Yeah. I, I was the same way. I didn't consider anyone else besides Javon Holland. I think he's that good. And I, I think 
it speaks to how good he's playing because of the reputation a guy like Troy Dye, a Jordan Scott, a Thomas Graham have. He's kind of forced his way. I don't, I'm not going to say that he's the team's best player on defense. He's in the discussion a hundred percent. Um, and he might even be the best player on defense right now, but he's elevated his game. He's taken it to another level and all of a sudden, Oregon now has, I think, kind of a first-team all-pack-12 player at all three levels. And I think Javon Holland's improvement, Jordan Scott's the, the, the defensive tackle, that I think first-team all-defense quality, Troy Dye, obviously. And then now with Javon Holland, um, I, I think you've got a, a recipe of a defense that's just truly elite. And, that, and I don't want to try and – Say Thomas Graham or Diama and Lenore can't be first team all Pac-12 because they those guys are playing at that level too. But agreed, agreed, just, yeah. That's just how impressive Javon Holland's rise has been from a freshman All-American, a guy that was you know a secondary player for Oregon last season, you know early on in the year, is now kind of morphed into maybe the team's best defensive player. So um, freshman. Most impre- impressive freshman of the pack uh, of the first four games for Oregon. I I don't know what your pick is, Eric. Um, I'm assuming though we're going to have the same one, and that's Mace Funa. We do. We have the same one. Um, I, I I just went with Funa um, based off of who he's going to be playing uh, at the positions. I mean, he's making impacts either in the passing game and the run, stopping the run, getting to the quarterback. Um, we knew Funa was gonna, was going to be a good football player. I don't know though if we were expecting it to happen this quickly, just because, like, look, like he didn't play all of his junior, all of his senior year, and then next thing you know, he's he's gone from a guy that's that's grown from you know a, an impact player, potential impact player, to to not playing any football as a high school senior, to showing up at Oregon, 290 pounds. Having the, the the ability to get his weight down, get his body right, get healthy, and oh by the way, still be be really 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 good. And he's he leads the team in tackles for loss. He leads the team in, in sacks. Uh, I, I'm very very impressed with what they've been able to get out of Mace Funa right away. And I don't think there was really a, a, another option out there. I I agree. There wasn't really one. Like I guess Mikhail Wright would be somebody you could consider because yeah. he had an interception, but like he hasn't been as like he hasn't been as consistently involved defensively. Um, Kayvon Thibodeau's played a lot, deserves some credit, probably a shout out. Um, offensively, like I, I'm having a hard time thinking of a true freshman besides Josh Delgado, who's really played very much. And Josh has done, I think Delgado's played really well, um, but not enough to earn this award over a guy like Mace Funa. So I agree. It was, it was a fairly easy choice for a lot of the reasons you just said. He's been <laughs> probably the most disruptive defensive player they have on the team and literally looks like a guy who, in a couple, like even by next year, maybe even by the end of this season, like is going to be like a legit guy nationally. People are talking about for some awards. Like he's that kind of a player, I think. And we didn't see much against Stanford, but uh, I'm I'm still expecting him to be. Like I don't think this is a thing where you know four games in we're going to pick Mace Funa as the freshman MVP, and then by the end of the season he's not even going to be considered. I think he's going to continue to play at a high level and continue to be somebody that we're that we're talking about kind of with these glowing remarks. Go ahead with uh, your surprise. My biggest surprise, 
will probably not surprise that many people if you've been following me closely. It's Blake Maimon, uh, <laughs> the, the punter. And why I say that is I have a, a love for punting and special teams in general and a love for walk-ons, and he checks both boxes. So uh, I, I, what, what, and there's not a whole lot you can say, though, just because like this was not a strength a year ago, really. The punting was not a strength. Again, it hasn't really been a strength for a long time, but he's punted at such a high level, like, I mean, he's flipping the field, and I think that really like was kind of an underrated part of that Stanford win. Was yeah. like even when that offense wasn't going great for Oregon, like he was at least able to pin Stanford deep, and like that's a Stanford offense that is not really equipped to go 75, 80 yards, 90 yards on a drive and score. Like that's not what they want to do. Um, and so for his ability to, you know, even if when the Oregon offense was struggling to kind of pin Stanford deep, I think that was huge and. It hasn't been just a one-game thing. We said it earlier. I think he's 21st nationally and third in the Pac-12. He averages about 46 yards per punt. Those are great numbers, and I continue to be just impressed with him. And it wasn't something I was necessarily expecting because coming into the year, it felt probable that, like last year, he would split duties with with Tom Snee. For me, I you picked my surprise for your offensive player of the week or of the of the, of the period, Johnny Johnson. Um, he's he took a step back as a sophomore last year. Yeah. And I think he would admit that. And I don't want to harp too much on that, but he was not good as a sophomore. A ton of drops. His confidence was shot. And I think Jovan Boatnight has done a really good job of building him back up. And most importantly, a lot of praise needs to fall on Johnny Johnson because not only has he regained his confidence – but I think he's turned himself into one of the more reliable receivers in the Pac-12. A guy, you know, I mean, it's just crazy to think of where he was as a sophomore to where he is as a junior. Um, I mean, I don't know if, if he's dropped a ball. I, I can't recall. I mean, maybe one. And I, mean, I think against Stanford, there was a tough pass that was thrown to him. But, like, I wouldn't say it was like a full-on drop. It would have been sure. a heck of a catch. And... I, I've already seen a ton of diving catches, yeah. you know, deep, deep shots that he's hauled in, uh, catches through traffic that he's caught, uh, guys draped over him, he's caught balls. Um, I think he's, his development of, I think going into the year it was, hey, if Johnny Johnson can, can become Morgan's fourth or, or third best receiver, that's a good, that's a good development for them. I think even with the injuries coming back, with Micah Pittman, Brendan Schooler, if Juwan Johnson comes back and those guys live up to expectations, I still think Johnny Johnson might be Oregon's go-to receiver this football season. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, he's, he's turned his game around and I'm really impressed with that. Um, other considerations I had from, from a surprise standpoint, the offensive run game, but I think Johnson's development dwarfs that. Um, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that how lethal this defense is, but at the same time, you know, I, I felt like there was talent there, and if they just could find the pieces to fit in the right ways, they'd be really good. So I went with Johnny Johnson, and I think th- th- you've got options, but I, I think he's the, he's the he's the choice for me. I think yeah, one thing that is going to be interesting to, to see is when Micah Pittman and Brennan Schooler, and I guess we'll include Juwan Johnson here because he needs to be included at least uh, when those guys come back, is, is what's the impact for this passing game? What's the impact, especially for a guy like Johnny Johnson, who's played at, like we've said, a very, very high level 
so far in four games. Um, does he continue to be the go-to guy? Is he a guy that Herbert just continues to roll with, or is there a step back from him in terms of production? Personally, like you said, I'm expecting him to continue to be a very large part of this, uh, you know, focal point of this passing attack all season, regardless of who comes back and kind of the level those guys play at. I still think Micah Pittman was my preseason uh, prediction to win uh, or to lead the team in receptions. That's obviously not going to happen considering he's missed the first four games. But I think Pittman's going to be a big part of this offense still. But I, I, I think Jai Johnson is, is quite a – he's done enough right now where I'm like, that might be the, the go-to guy all year. Right. That's going to do it for us on the podcast. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Enjoy your bye week weekend uh, where we have an opportunity to watch a ton of Pac-12 football and uh, relish in, in some games where we don't have to worry about what Oregon's doing or what they're who they're playing. So uh, for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Brim, thanks for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.